You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Christopher Media, let's make some noise. It started high on a lonely note. It all started that day on the beach near Istanbul. Or did it? It started the instant you saw her. blowing high on a lonely trumpet drifts from Istanbul to Rio de Janeiro but he can't erase a vision of death and beauty even a love like he has never known or dared imagine can make him forget tell me how did she hook your mind just how tell me please As if an unworldly desire could create reality, his vision is real. His Venus in furs is alive. Who are you? I don't know. Who is she? Tell me the truth. I don't know. And I don't care. She is Wanda. She is his Venus in furs. She is alive. And the coat that covers paradise uncovers hell. She returned from hell to take her murderers back, or was this hell? I know you. I met you a long time ago. Together, we united in death. Who is this elusive Venus? Is she the sex symbol of a wild fantasy? We escaped from the real world into a dream world that I never wanted to end. Everything ended a long time ago. Venus in furs, a masterpiece of supernatural sex. A frightening trip into the unknown by the unknowing. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Sam Deegan. Hello. Also joining us is Mr. Brad Jones. Hey there. 
Our look at the films of 1969 continues with Jess Franco's Venus in Furs, taking its title from the notorious book by Leopold von Sacha Masak. The film stars James Darren as Jimmy Logan, a musician who can blow a cool horn, man. He finds the corpse of a woman he has seen at a party, the mysterious Wanda, played by Maria Rome. When Wanda shows up, alive and seducing, shortly thereafter, Jimmy becomes obsessed with her, despite his loving relationship with the Shan Rita, played by Barbara McNair. So we will be spoiling the heck out of this movie. So if you haven't seen this one before, definitely check it out. And Sam, I'm very curious, when was the first time you saw Venus and Furs? And what did you think of this thing? I want to say this was maybe the second or third Franco film I ever saw. And I got it because I was a fan of the book and assumed foolishly that it would be sort of a literal adaptation and saw it, wondered what the fuck was going on, watched it like two more times, fell in love with it. And it's still probably in my top three Franco films. How about you, Brad? I first saw this movie 24 hours ago. In fairness to me though, I had thought I had seen it before, but it's very easy to uh, kind of maybe confuse one Franco movie for the other. So I think maybe I had She Killed an Ecstasy or 99 Women uh, in my head. I used to have a collection of uh, a, a, a number of, of, of his movies. And I think I did actually own this at one point, like right before my DVD collection was stolen, like 10 years ago. So your dog ate your homework. Is that what you're trying to tell me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no. Wanda ate his homework was perfect for me to watch this movie yesterday, though, because I've got the Christmas flu going on. So watching a movie like this hopped up on a bunch of cold medication is the best possible choice you could make. I told you, officer, I'm not heffed up on goofball. As far as Jess Franco as a director goes, like you get kind of one thing or the other. You get the ones that are beautifully shot, like looking at an old like fashion ad on camera and then you get that other league where it's like well this probably killed the weekend shooting this like sadomania or ilsa the wicked warden this is certainly in the camp of ones where it's like gorgeous to look at i don't know how much else i got out of it other than that (laughs) this was also a first time watch for me i have seen some franco films but it's not like i'm not as familiar with his work as i know a lot of other people are I know the occasional title. I know sometimes he's, and please correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I think he's pretty hit or miss. And for me, Venus and Furs hits, though we'll talk about how this differs against another cut of his own film. Um, and that I, I kind of like that version better. So we'll definitely talk about that as we go along because yeah, to your point, Sam, uh, not an adaptation of the Von Sescher Massac book. Not at all got the title and you got the name Wanda and that's about it. And she's in wearing fur at some point, but I feel like it's been made immediately clear to me that I'm going to be the one defending Jess Franco in this episode because I love him and I think he has way more hits than misses. He's not for everyone though. I don't think I know enough about the man to even start to tear down his work uh, because I've just have seen probably less than a handful. I've probably have seen more than I even realize because he is so prolific. Ridiculously. So 
Yeah, he's like the Takashi Miike or Teru Ishii of uh, um, of Italian slash Spanish cinema. I mean, he was kind of like a overall European filmmaker, wasn't he? Yeah, to me, he's more Euro cult than Spanish because most of his films were funded with money from all across Europe. You know, he worked with a British producer like Harry Allen Towers a lot. So to me, he just is sort of like ultimate Euro cult. His films are often set in different locations. I mean, this one definitely follows that trope where it's like people are running all over Europe and the Middle East and South America and just a big melting pot of European culture. But the sleazy version. I like that this came out of a conversation that he had with Chet Baker about a musician because Franco actually was a jazz musician and musicians. And he wanted to originally have this as being a story about a black man in love with a white woman, a black um, jazz musician in love with a white woman. And then since this is 1969, which is kind of weird to say that was still too soon for the producers to get behind. They were just like, no, 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 that's way too risky. We can't handle that. Which is appalling. (laughs) Throw in some sadomasochistic death in there. Something for all audiences. Something safe. And something safe like like Klaus Kinski as like an opium-addicted Turkish prince or whatever the hell he's supposed to be. God, you gotta pull the family into these theaters. In 69, it was okay for a white guy to be dating a black woman, but not for a black guy to be dating a white woman. So it's just kind of weird and then also that we've got the white woman thrown in here so we've got the white guy the black lady and then we've got wanda who is kind of driving a wedge between them and i think that she can do that easier because that of the racial divide that our main couple has and then also she's just gorgeous and she's aloof and jimmy really wants to figure out what's going on with this uh this really happening chick i should say this is almost one of those movies where When I try to just because usually if somebody asks me, you know, give me a couple of suggestions of Jess Franco movies to start with, I always throw this in there. But it's so hard to describe because it's I mean, it's basically she killed an ecstasy and this movie have that same sort of revenge plot. But the romantic relationship in this one, it makes no sense in a way that I love. But you're just like, why is he so obsessed with her? Why, indeed. I mean, we've got that whole idea of him meeting her at this party. And I love this crazy party that starts kind of like everyone is still and just waiting for the music to start. It's not still images, though we do. I think we have some still images in here at, at a few points. But for this, it is just people standing still. And I love that you can even see the uh, liquid in people's glasses moving as you can see like a little bit of shaking going on from these folks. But it's such an interesting image to begin this party with and then introduce us to our, I guess, Five main players, maybe six. We've got the three murderers. We've got Jimmy. We've got Wanda. And we've got Rita. So six main people in this movie. For such a small cast, it doesn't feel... I I guess because like the set, like the location changes so often and they're at so many different parties, it doesn't feel like a small chamber drama or something. It seems much bigger than that. And we're playing with time a lot in this as well. You're talking about locations, and then also we've got time. And because we start with this 
scene on a beach where Jimmy's digging up his horn and playing trumpet out on this beach. And then he finds this dead body of this woman. And then he flashes back to this party. But then later on, it feels like he's back at this party, even though he has moved now from Istanbul to Rio. But the setting looks almost exactly the same. In a way, it kind of reminds me of a sort of David Lynch vibe where you have people in these kind of social settings who feel really out of it or isolated. And so it it seems like the setting is always the same because they're just not that invested in it. And that's kind of how Jimmy's change of scenery makes me feel like he just is so checked out. I was thinking the same thing. Like, remember Bill Pullman in Lost Highway? Oh, totally. It was. I was thinking that a, a lot during this, where I'm like, there's all this kind of craziness going on around this guy when he really just kind of wants to play his horn, just go to his jazz clubs and play with Manford Man and Jess Franco there in the background. It, I love Jimmy's um, also different types of reactions to the things that are going on, where he witnesses this whipping, this murder with... Klaus Kinski and all this, but then just kind of has this nonchalant reaction of, well, hey, this really isn't my scene. Uh, I don't know. This this is none of my business. And then just kind of walks away. But then later on has like an extreme reaction to uh, when the two are on the couch and they're dumping feathers over the the two making out and he has a way more extreme reaction to that than like the klaus kinski murder he saw where he's like hey man if this is your scene leave me out of it man it was a wild scene like if they wanted to go that route it was their bag i told myself it was none of my business but maybe i split because i was just as sick as they were but couldn't face up to it yeah, I mean, sadomasochistic murder is fine, but lesbianism, step too far. Whoa, dude, too far. <laughs> you gotta draw the line somewhere. The line must be drawn here. I just love that Paul Mueller is there dumping feathers on them and no one seems to notice or, like, they don't stop making out. They're just like, okay. This is just a thing that's happening. <laughs> like, I see the clouds have finished above us. Well, and there's some discussion of like homosexual interaction going on, male homosexuality, but that seems to be really taboo in this movie. So that's just basically mentioned, but not acted upon at all. Yeah, there were certain things that you could get away with in 69, apparently, but other things that were just a little too hot topic. In your, uh, your notes, you mentioned the sort of story of the black trumpeter falling in love with the white woman as being a little bit like Miles Davis. And, I mean, this is really only a decade, basically, after he and Juliet Greco had to end their relationship because they just socially couldn't be together. It's such a crazy thing to think about, because it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, and it's still, I mean, there's still a lot of issues when it comes to that. I mean, just a few years ago, it was unheard of to even have a commercial with a multiracial couple in it. And it just people were losing their fucking minds about a black man and a white woman in like a Target commercial. But can you imagine the number of people who probably went on Twitter like, <laughs> I'm not going to buy my trumpet from Target from now on. I'm going to have to get it from Walmart to bury it in the beach. Yeah, they didn't even write Merry Christmas on my trumpet. They said Happy Holidays. How dare they? Jets Franco's War on Christmas. That is sort of the strange thing about the taboos in this film is, to your point earlier, they were kind of 
producer enforced, but I don't really associate those kinds of sexual taboos or romantic taboos with his career. So it is a little bit weird to see them here. It was weird to see a lot of things here for me because James Darren, I mainly know him from Officer Corrigan from TJ Hooker. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of fun when you pop in a movie like this and like, oh, it's Detective Corrigan. Plus with She Killed an Ecstasy, and it's been a while since seeing She Killed an Ecstasy, but I mean, what I remember about, mainly about that, because I mean, this was reminding me a bit of that, but it seemed like that was more approachable as like a revenge movie. Whereas in this, it did feel like the revenge aspect of it was something that came into play later in in writing and and making this movie. Like it wasn't necessarily the intent from the beginning to have it be this sort of surreal thriller. Whereas she she killed an ex to see that always kind of seemed the thriller aspect of it always kind of maybe seemed to be the case since that movie's conception. Whereas this was like almost a fever dream of that. Like it's a contact high from She Killed in Ecstasy. Yeah, I could totally see that. I mean, if anyone listening hasn't seen She Killed in Ecstasy, the plot is basically this young doctor is sort of going down this path of medical experimentation that his colleagues are frown upon. And they harass him and ruin his career and basically drive him to suicide and his absolutely gorgeous young wife played by Soledad Miranda loses her mind pretty much because he commits suicide. And so she goes after all of the doctors who drove him to suicide and kills them all. It has the same sort of thing as this film where there is one woman that she seduces and kills. So it does have this really weird echo of that. But like you said, it's almost like somebody watched a movie of that film and I had a dream about it and it's because <laughs> it's like, is she getting revenge for her own murder? Like what is, is going on exactly? It's very lost highway. And I watched this movie with uh, my wife. She wanted to know the synopsis of it. So I read her. This <laughs> is one of those of movies <laughs> where when you read the synopsis, it's technically accurate. So I'm reading the synopsis and it's, yeah, it's like, okay, body washes ashore. Found by trumpet player, body comes back to life, gets revenge on these people that caused these murder. And but it it is one of those where you take that, match it with the still shots of the movie that you probably see on like the DVD or IMDb or wherever. And the movie that you're picturing in your head really isn't going to be what you're getting when you're watching it. And you kind of figure it out fairly quickly. <laughs> It reminds me of that really ridiculous, accurate, but totally wrong Wizard of Oz plot description. It's like a young girl kills a woman by dropping a house on her and then goes to kill her sister. (laughs) It's like, technically it's right, but when you watch the movie, that's not the movie. (laughs) This is the same thing. I figured it out really quick that the revenge was going to be basically their cinematography to death. Like I'm like, I was just sitting there going, I'm not sure how the old guy just died that she's got struck up, but it was beautifully shot. So it was killed with some fantastically beautiful camera angles. Are you talking about the Klaus Kinski one? No, the old dude in the, the, first, the first half one. hour. Okay. He just seems to maybe come to death. It's just, that's what, that's what I thought. Like, he maybe had a heart attack or a stroke or something. And the most 
that you mostly see her in reflection shots. You don't necessarily see the two of them together with her corporeally, except maybe one or two times. But for the rest of it, it seems like it's all reflections that he is seeing. And then I want to say, is it that towards the end of that, it's more of like a, she's got more of a monster face at one point. Maybe that's what puts him over the edge. So the first time I saw this movie, I, I loved that about it, that a lot of the time she's shown in reflection more than she is shot head on. And I was convinced that by the end of the movie, there was going to be this big reveal that Jimmy just imagined that she came back to life and he killed them all, which is sort of suggested in the Paroxmus version, which we'll talk about later, but like that's not really where it goes. So I don't have much of an explanation other than it is gorgeous. Well, this movie tells a story unto itself if you just watch Wanda's hair, because her hair changes so many different times, and it kind of puts it in a different order than we're necessarily seeing. The first time when she comes back, because when we see her the first time when she's at the party, she's got this long blonde hair. And then when she comes back from the dead, when Jimmy goes to Rio, she's got the shorter blonde hair. But then when she's killing people, she's got the short brown hair and then we just kind of move back and forth and that's almost like a signpost to say is this happening now or is it happening in the past or is this happening in these murders because she just completely changes when it comes to the murder scenes and it's like okay i i guess she goes back to something because she's as far as i remember we don't see her with that hairstyle in the flashback, so it just seems to be like her murdering hairdo. Or just everyone wore wigs in 1969. Even James Darren, it's like his his hair <laughs> never moves in this movie. It's the same as it was decades later in T.J. Hooker. There's also a suggestion that these ideas and these sequences are coming out of James Darren as he's there playing the trumpet, that this is what he's fantasizing about as he's playing his solos, because just Franco's going on record to say like, oh yeah, when you're playing a solo, your mind goes to another place and you don't really realize how much time has passed. So I'm like, oh, okay, so maybe this is Jimmy fantasizing this stuff as he's standing up at the front of the club and playing his trumpet. Well, that is, I think, one of the film's few connections to the book is that they both kind of question, and I think this is also true of the Massimo Delamino version, that they all kind of question this idea of a male fantasy of a woman and this sort of idea of like the kind of ultimate sexual fantasy or the ultimate romantic fantasy and they all kind of leave a bad taste in your mouth, I think intentionally. But even this one, it's like, Jimmy's the protagonist. And I think we're supposed to feel bad for him and identify with him. But at the same time, it's like, why are you so you have this perfectly nice, albeit a little bit obnoxiously singing woman who is in love with you and wants to take care of you, but you just you want wig lady. But there's so many options at this party. Yeah, Barbara McDare as Rita, she can really belt out a tune and having her laying on the floor for her introduction with that <laughs> crazy let's stay together song. It's just like, wow. Okay. It's, it, she reminds me of like that scene and I'm going to get you sucker where it's like 
Keenan Ivory Wayans' sister up at the front of the club singing and just <laughs> yes. going nuts. And it's like, how'd she get a role? Oh, she's the the director's sister. Kind of reminded me of like Live and Let Die, where like you'd have you'd have James Bond walk into a place like this for, for no other reason than to just have someone there be singing the theme song. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Bond because I randomly am a big fan of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which also opens with a scene where a man rescues a woman's body from the ocean. And I I don't know why, but every time I watch, because I've seen that, I saw that movie before I saw this. And I don't know why, but like in my brain, there's just a connection between the two of them. Like the late 60s, early 70s movies where women are washing up on the beach, I guess. It's it's so funny you mentioned that because I wrote down on Her Majesty's Secret Service in my notes, but it was like (laughs) written down far enough to where it was like, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one thinking about this movie. I'm also a huge Honor Majesty Secret Service fan. So oh, that's when, exciting. When all of this stuff was going on, like at this party in these different rooms and this nice like mansion and everything, like, yeah, I, I was thinking about the opening scene too. And also even later, I was like, I feel like this is what's going on at that ski lodge with Telly Savalas before James Bond <laughs> shows up. It's almost like this is the kind of nightmare version of that glamorous, jazzy, life of leisure world that we see in the Bond movies. It's like this is the dark side. Like a fashion magazine, a fashion ad that you have to ask for because it's behind the counter. I was actually reminded more of Moonraker with those shots of Rio and just how we just use the carnival footage whenever there's like a need for something to break up the movie it's just like oh yeah and carnival is happening at the same time and jimmy's going to talk over it because jimmy's voiceover i had a real problem with jimmy's voiceover because the guy just does not shut up and he sounds like he's on a lot of cold medicine like like brad he sounds like i get that it's going for a sort of film noir type i'm going to give you an introduction to this story which involves a dame and you know, I'm maybe I'm an unreliable narrator. Well, you'll have to wait and find out. But then he just keeps going. So I, I have to agree with you. He sounds very unengaged. And th- I think that is part of my frustration about why is he so obsessive with her? Because he sounds like he just doesn't care. Well, I mean, there are times where, especially at the end, when he's at the uh, the graveyard, I'm just like, oh, okay, I get it. He's Scotty from Vertigo. He's obsessed with this dead girl that he saw one time while she was alive. And now he thinks he sees her as this ghost. So like, we've got this whole vibe going on, but yeah, there never seems to be that. Why is Jimmy so obsessed with her? Because it feels like he saw her once at a party. He's just like, well, you know, I'm a voyeur. I'm watching this stuff that I probably shouldn't watch. So he ducks out of there. And then, yeah, when she shows back up, being alive again it's like okay that's interesting but i don't know yeah if i would just throw over barbara mcnair to go chasing after this woman and then you've got those crazy scenes of him following her they're all it looks almost like i'll post a slow-mo kind of thing and then the the weird shot of her inside the house going go away jimmy go away and it's like how does she even know this guy's name okay would jess franco like because he's insanely versatile 
like something like Vampiros Lesbos, way different than like Castle of Fu Manchu. But no matter what movie of his you're watching, there will be one thing about it where it's like, okay, this right here has something in common with one of the lesser ones or, or a lot of his other movies. Like, and in the case of this movie, gorgeous film, absolutely. But also, like something like Castle of Fu Manchu, has some stock footage in it. Definitely uses the stock footage to balance out the budget. Uh, but like Vampiros Lesbos, though, a lot of my favorite Franco movies, they do have that sort of theme of kind of unexpl- not that you really can have a rational explanation for obsession, but sort of an obsession that is made very clear throughout the plot of the film. But the reason why is never given any explanation. It's just you see this one character who's just enthralled by another character. And sometimes the reason seems supernatural. Sometimes it just, I I feel like that just was something that really interested him as a storyteller. Because you can always tell that those are the kind of movies he's way more into because they certainly look the best, whether it's Vampiros Lesbos, whether it's this female vampire, Diabolical Dr. Z versus one of the women in prison films like Sadomania or or (laughs) film like that. You can tell the difference when he's more passionate about a theme or a topic or a movie versus uh, another one. For me, those are his best films where you can see him working out these issues that really interest him. I mean, even something like another one of my favorites, Nightmares Come at Night, is another one that seems to have no coherent plot, but very strongly has that theme of obsession and a character being drawn towards something and they don't understand why, but they're powerless to stop it. I feel like he's getting close to a theme of voyeurism versus like art and things to be looked at because we've got that that all those crazy paintings that are in Wanda's area when he goes to, I guess, where Wanda's living and has sex with her. And this is where we switch from long hair to short blonde hair for whatever reason. And we've got these, they almost remind me of like keen paintings, some of these crazy things that are on the wall. And then I want to say that the first guy that she ends up revenge killing, isn't he an art dealer? I think so. Yes. That, that was the impression I got. And then the second one's a photographer. We know that the woman is a photographer. And then you've got Klaus Kinski, and he, he just doesn't fit in at all. Because I'm just like, okay, good. We've got a theme. Go- oh, and then there's Klaus Kinski. Okay. You could argue that Klaus Kinski fits in because he's just this sort of wealthy playboy, and he spends his time pursuing pleasure and collecting beautiful things. If you want to make that leap. The Klaus Kinsey part just doesn't feel like it's from the same movie sometimes. Like, I know he's there with the two other people when they're doing the S&M, the non-safe saint consensual S&M with Wanda at the beginning. And then we see him, you know, later on and we see him in the red room with her corpse and everything. But it just feels like him in that whole chic type get up just it feels like this was from another movie and they just repurposed it for Venus and furs. I was glad to see that she has the same hair in that, that she has in the other murders. Cause at first I was just like, is this even from the same movie? 
With Klaus Kinski there, though, it makes sense why Jimmy's reaction to all the weirdness would be so subdued because you, you just <laughs> got to expect that when going to a party at Klaus Kinski's house. You sure do. But actually, I thought that, that the Klaus Kinski sequence was the one that at all was most inspired by the book because there's the whole issue of the role playing between the two of them. And he says, you know, you be the master and I'll be the servant for a change. I felt like maybe that was his attempt to kind of actually connect to Venus and Furs, the novel. Maybe I'm reaching. I like to overthink things and find explanations where possibly sometimes there are none. Felt like he would probably try to top from the bottom though, if you were in that situation for real. Klaus? Oh, for sure. Which is probably why, you know, you would only try to do that if you are secretly planning to murder him. But no, you're right. Especially when she's there making love with other people and forcing him to watch. I was like, yeah, that is as close to like that last bit of Von Sacher Maschlach's uh, book that we're going to get. Other than, yeah, her... Her wearing those furs every once in a while. And then I love the musical cue that comes up every time she murders someone straight out of that Manfred Mann song. It's one of my favorite pieces of music ever. I love it so much. That was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> Venus and furs will be smiling. Venus and furs will be I love the spooky music that they have that comes up on the soundtrack, too, where it's just like, oh, man, something's going on now. Whenever my mind would kind of start to wander a little bit or something like that, that would certainly snap it right back into it. And it does make it sort of seem like what we were talking about earlier. It, it seems it, the music is so haunting and it usually accompanies reflections of her. So it, it's like, is she supposed to be a ghost? Is that what what's going on here? When... Kinski is then dead, and the police officer shows up at his house, and he's like, "Oh no, no, Wanda's right upstairs." You know, like because she just kind of appears in his bedroom. There's no like her coming back from Kinski's place, and I, I'm guessing that they're still in Istanbul at this point because they hop back and forth from Istanbul to Rio, back to Istanbul, and I'm guessing that's where the cop is. I really couldn't tell where they were supposed to be in that last scene. Istanbul. But you know where they're not. Where's that? Constantinople. They really are supposed to be in Istanbul, though. (laughs) Jokes aside. (laughs) Because she washed up on the shores, and they put that on her grave in perfect English, because that's what they use in Istanbul. Yes, of course. (laughs) Although I think in the other Italian cut, I do think you see gravestones in Turkish. Maybe I just imagined that. I'll have to go back and try to find that. But it's like hers is definitely in English. But so there must have been some sort of cutting in of her headstone. Just like there was a cutting in of the newspaper. And when he looks at the newspaper and it's like the big, big, beautiful black and white photo of her, like right there where it doesn't even look like it fits on the newspaper. It's like, okay. I don't know what newspaper you're reading, but Maria Rome is always on the cover of the news here in Philadelphia, as she should be. Well, yeah, let's talk about that other version of it, because I was I was trying like heck, because usually if it's like, okay, yeah, there's a second version of a movie out there, 
there's going to be, you know, 10 different bootleg sites that are selling it. And I was having the worst time finding any sort of verification that this thing even was supposed to exist. And then I actually was through the Franco interview where he was talking about how it got recut after he was kind of done with it. And I was like, oh, okay, this is starting to make sense. So I'm I'm guessing that this version that we're going to call Perioximus, that that is closer to what Franco wanted to do than what Venus infers that you can find now at your local DVD store, that that is more like the AIP version of it. Which is so strange to me because I've seen the Venus infers version so many times, it's hard to imagine the film being different. But the Paroxysmus version... I don't think I like it as much and maybe it's because I it's just a, you know, I like the other version is what I'm used to, but it could be Im- my imagination, but it seemed like they put some of the musical sequences together so that they're longer. If if you know what I mean, rather than like dispersing them throughout the film, it seemed like there was just this long block of jazz music. Then they also switch the order of stuff because it, the first time that we see Rita, she's singing the Venus and Furs song, which we get almost as a coda in the Venus and Furs version. Whereas in this one, she sings that right off the bat and then she sings the Let's Stay Together later on, which to me makes more sense because Let's Stay Together is basically them breaking up and her roiling around on the floor. That but that point seems to make more sense, like she's in agony that her guy is going to leave her for a ghost. But then I'm looking at the Manfred Mann album collection, and Let's Get Together is higher up, so it is more in the order of what we're seeing in the uh, the, the Venus and Furs movie. But I'm just like, it just makes more sense to flip-flop those songs. I also love that the version you found was clearly shown on Italian television during Halloween. <laughs> Oh, I love that. I love the little blip where you see the witch that's yes, flying across the screen. I loved that so much. And the fact that all of the nudity is censored out in the weirdest and most like most like 70s disco Italian way possible. Yeah, because I've read people reviewing that version. They're just like, oh, what is all this weird post-production stuff that they're doing? And I'm like, obviously, this is for Italian TV, that they're covering up any sort of boobies or lesbianism or any of that stuff that they can possibly even think of. So every time she goes to kill somebody, I think it's also abbreviated, but it's definitely censored with like flashing lights and colors and like big strobe, like kaleidoscopes. It's not as bad as trying to watch porn when you didn't have the porn channels, you know, pretty scrambled. Yeah. So many of his movies have alternate versions to the point to where it, it's reached, at least with this, it's like, okay, this is like a real alternate version of this versus I've seen so many of his where the alternate version is like the same thing. He just spliced porn into it. I had this really bad run for a while where I would be, when I first started to get into his films, I happened to have female roommates at the time, which I haven't since. And anytime I would put on a Jess Franco movie, usually these were, were, it was still like, this is probably like 10 years ago. So I was still finding bootlegs. And 
It was inevitably anytime one of my roommates would come home, surprise, there's a hardcore insert that you didn't know was in this movie. And it was like, you guys, this isn't what you think. <laughs> what are you watching? <laughs> it's just a Jess Franco movie. <laughs> yeah. And it would, I remember there being, oh, I think it was exorcismo maybe where uh the inserts would just look like somebody taped over the movie you're watching yep where it would be like clearly shot like 20 years later on a vhs tape yeah suddenly there's a blowjob you had to grow up watching movies at a certain time and like finding bootlegs at a certain time to experience that but i think it's something everyone should have to live through at least at least once <laughs> Well, I'm surprised that this weird taped-off-of-Italian-TV version is the only version that I can find of this. And I would love it if somebody could go back and actually restore this version to something a little bit closer, because it just feels like it's a lot of stuff being put in different order. And I want to say, I want to say, and I won't swear to it, that Jimmy and Wanda never actually fuck in this version, that it's just... It's like him and Rita uh, more, and then him and Wanda, that whole initial thing where she switches from the long hair to the short hair that I was talking about earlier. I don't think that that's in there. From what I can remember, it seems like in Paroxysmus, there are way more scenes of Jimmy waking up alone in bed. And I think they want you to feel like she's a figment of his imagination and that she's not actually there. Whereas the other version... There's so many more sex scenes and there are scenes where Wanda and Rita see each other, or at least Rita sees Wanda. And I I think that happens a lot more in the Venus and Furs version. Yeah, there's more talk of him speaking in his sleep and saying Wanda's name in his sleep, which then it kind of also lends you to think like, well, maybe he's actually committing the murders rather than Wanda, because maybe all of that was his dream rather than, you know, I was saying just like his his trumpet playing dream. Tell me some of the things you think about when you're playing, though, the images. Because, of course, when you're playing, I thought of things like sheep and things like that, little candies, fresh little candies and things like that. Do you think of those things, too? Oh, I, I basically think about my financial situation. I count every like beat I, I play, every note I play, and I figure out how many notes I'm giving uh, into the space, you know, uh-huh. out into space. Sure. Um, for how much I'm getting paid, and I am working cheap. The Paroxymus cut ends so abruptly, and it ends before Jimmy actually finds his his own dead body on the beach, which then throws a whole other twist into Venus and Furs as far as, are we watching some sort of weird ghost story, last few minutes of this guy's life, or is it, the, you know, is is he like the Joe Gillis of this movie? What's going on with it? That's sort of where the paroxysmus version falls apart is they're fleeing the police in his car one minute. And then the next minute, he's just like running into a cemetery and she's not there. I I saw something and I'm trying to remember where I found this, but I was reading something that just had this like short mention to the fact that there's an Italian recut that made this seem like a giallo film. And there can't be another Italian version out there. So I'm guessing it was just somebody. What One of my biggest pet peeves are film reviewers, especially cult film reviewers who refer to any Italian horror movie as a giallo film. I'm guessing that's all it was. But in my head, I'm now like, is there a third version where Jimmy is actually the killer? Like <laughs> They just insert black gloves into it. 
Which wouldn't be that difficult because even if you used existing black leather glove footage from other Franco movies, I'm pretty sure you could find it. <laughs> Not that I'm suggesting someone should go out and make an ultimate cut of this made up movie, but I so know what you mean. Were they just referring to every exploitation movie as a giallo movie? Yeah, <laughs> like it makes who me crazy. Watch horror movies, every horror movie from the '80s is a slasher film. <laughs> Every single one, just like how Suspiria is the ultimate Jalo movie. It does really speak to almost the fluidity of filmmaking that you can have these two cuts that are so different. And a lot of it is because you don't necessarily see people's mouths moving. Like there's a lot of things that are done with people's mouths being obscured. Like I noticed when Jimmy's in bed, his arm is over his mouth. So in one version, he's moaning in his sleep. And in the other version, he's not moaning in his sleep. And it's like, Oh, okay. Cause you can do that all in post and add whatever sounds that are coming out of Jimmy's non-seen mouth, unseen mouth that you possibly want to, or even during the murder of Wanda, because it's, there's uh it kind of reminds me of uh, the big combo there's a big light outside that keeps rotating so the light will the room will light up and go back into darkness and so there are moments in i think the venus and vers where they are speaking to her like get over here you bitch those kind of things and in the italian version it's the dialogue comes in other places because again it's in darkness you can't see who's speaking what's being said if their mouths are moving and i just appreciate that this movie can be so different from these two different cuts and a lot of it is thanks to just the way that it was shot and you know adding the rio footage doing it does one thing adding jimmy's voiceover does another and then even in paroximus there's a voiceover from wanda at the beginning because when he is there digging up his trumpet and stuff i think she's speaking to him from the dead like oh remember me and it's like okay that's interesting that you can do that because it's just vo it's just audio laid over top and even the soundtrack is a little bit different as far as when music is used versus not used this movie's good at doing that too like it it does it seamlessly to where it feels like it's always just part of this style and it's a style they're very good at i've I've seen movies do the same thing where it's done very cheap and very obvious where the whole movie was wouldn't even be a foreign language movie they just the whole thing would just be dubbed and it makes it very (laughs) makes it easier to dub when half the movie the guy's got a newspaper over his face Diary of a Nudist did that for like half the movie, where like half the time they'd be on the telephone and just the the mouth part would be just covering their mouth. Like this did that seamlessly and, and very well. Yeah, I mean, even the the Klaus Kinski scene, he's laying down on a table for some of it, and so you can't really see his mouth moving, and the dialogue from one version to the other is pretty different. Well, in the Paroximus version. Uh, when he hands him the newspaper, there is no insert shot of Wanda. So he says, like, oh, yeah, I've heard of this. Um, I can't remember Kinski's name, but uh, the the Sheik or whatever. And so it becomes more about the Kinski character than about the Wanda character. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I had a dream about this guy that he was strung up. And it's like, what? You had a dream? What? This guy was just strung up. What's going on? I love the Venus and Furs version, but the Paroxysmus version is kind of more fucked up because he sees her and sort of says, what are you doing? I was having a dream. And she says something like, oh, you're still having a dream. And now it's about me. And, you know, tell me what your fantasy is. So she sort of makes him think that he's having this like S&M sex dream about her. But really, she's there killing him. In the Venus and Furs version, you're really 
telegraphed the end of Kinski because you see him at the beginning with that knife, and then it does this weird kind of flash cut between him as this Kinski and then him as the Sheik Kinski. So it's like, okay, why are you doing that? And I guess it's just trying to tell us, like, look for this guy wearing much different clothes at the end of the movie. Because <laughs> I know that's one thing that Franco did not like was all of the post uh, effects that they put in there, the use of the, the red screens, the green screens, the, the, that horrible post slow mo, especially with Jimmy running down the beach at the end where you just see every piece of dirt that was on the film. <laughs> it feels very not Franco. Like it's not, it's not elegant enough or something. Because there is some slow-mo that is shot purposefully, and that looks good. And then the stuff that was done post, it's just like, ah, this looks really ragged. I know. Like, the first time, it was one of those situations where you're sort of like, is my laptop lagging behind? (laughs) Is my brain lagging? Because that's how it feels right now. Because really, this is a gorgeous movie. I love the look of the film stock. Everything looks really well lit. And some of those images are just super striking. Like the image towards the end of Venus and Furs when they're all in that red room with that little, I'm going to call him a swami guy. I'm not sure who this old guy is supposed to be that's in the room with them. But that stuff looks gorgeous. You mentioned Lynch before. This looks very Lynch. It almost looks a little uh, Kubrick as well. I'm kind of thinking like, you know, Tom Cruise is in the next room talking to Sidney Pollack about a dead hooker. I think that's why I was so drawn to it the first time I saw it is because it is so beautiful. Last year it played in New York. Somebody found a 35 millimeter print and I was blown away. Just like being able to hear that score so loud whatever print they got looked amazing. Like it obviously wasn't restored, but I think in a way it was better than it wasn't. Yeah. And his use of colors is gorgeous. And then I liked watching it again, uh, just the other day, seeing how, when we're introduced to those characters, it looks like it was shot in that red room. Each time we see, you know, the art dealer, the photographer, Klaus Kinski, they're shot against that red background. And then when we get more into the party, there's no way that that red background is there. But there is a red background behind Jimmy, so it kind of works both ways. It feels like they're trapped in that room with the crime that they've committed. Like, maybe they're in purgatory after that. But again, I still don't know why that little Swami dude is there. He's the purgatory overseer. You're welcome. He's the one that says, you have to take back one Kadam. Yes, that is him. (laughs) What I liked best about it was certainly how it looked. The music, the cinematography, the mood, all of that. Nothing else really about it really hooked me into it. Whereas a lot of Franco's movies that I could say the same thing about that I love have something in there, be it story, characters, whatever, that certainly draw me into it, or I, I get hooked. This Never really had that for me. So it was kind of like, it was like being on a date with someone who's really, really, really gorgeous. You get about a half hour in and it's sort of like, there's nothing really here beyond like a physical attraction. Like there's no, I'm not, there's no like connection or spark or anything. That was kind of how I felt about this movie. But I did enjoy the experience of watching it. I mean, I, I, I did. It's not like when it ended, I was like, oh, well, that was a waste of like 86 minutes. No, it was a gorgeous movie. There's just other movies of his that I just enjoyed a lot better than this. Well, out of his 180-some movies, which do you like better? 
She killed in ecstasy, of course. Female vampire I always really, really liked. Diabolical Dr. Z, I mentioned that earlier. Even his lesser ones, there would be something memorable to them, be it good or bad or outlandish that would happen in them. Something like Sadomania, which is a pretty bad movie, but half hour through this rubber alligator pops up and kills these people like well i'm gonna certainly remember that and you know castle of the the couple of fu manchu movies he did you know there's christopher lee being over the top in the character that kind of carries through the movie there'll usually be something memorable in a lot of the movies i've seen he's one of those directors where it's like i feel i feel like i can say i've seen a number of his movies but in the grand scheme of things when he's got like 180 some movies he's made like wow he stepped back and it's like oh well maybe i've actually only seen about 10 percent of them and that's generous the reason i love this so much and this sort of quality that shows up in a number of his films like nightmares come at night virgin among the living dead definitely she killed in ecstasy even Eugenie Desaad, female vampire, there's this weird kind of dreamlike, melancholic quality that I love. And it sort of makes me feel something even when and feel compelled, even when the events on screen aren't always making sense, or I don't always like all the characters. Like I'm not a very big fan of Jimmy which I think in a way makes the film more effective because Wanda isn't a real person. She's just used by everyone as sort of a different fantasy. And there's just something so sad about it. And I I think the score certainly adds to that. The score was probably my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And I like all the different versions of Venus and Furs, him playing it on the trumpet and Rita singing it and then just hearing it on the soundtrack. Everything really worked. And then the other incidental and jazz stuff really worked for me. And I love his his jazz cameo, which I think I think we mentioned earlier. No matter what kind of movie of his you're watching, whether it's something like Ilsa, the Wicked Warden or this, he's going to pop up somewhere. <laughs> Oh, it's nice that he had a jazz background, too. I had no idea about Jess Franco before I got into this. He was a renaissance man, for sure. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back right after these messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. 
Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Listen to somebody pleading for money. I make a fool of myself begging for money. And you, and you won't give me $2, you know? Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fuck simple eyeballs yep. out. She was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There were some butts. Yep, pillins. Yep, butt. Yep, pillins. Butt. Yep, pillins. If it's over 90% cheek, that's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for a classy broads and a token dude talking horror. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia. We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have... A huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah, thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. Night.
All right, we were back and we were talking about Venus and Furs. So again, 1969, big year for Venus and Furs because there was this one which had the title, and then there's another version which I don't think ended up with the title. I think it was uh, Devil in the Flesh, or I can't even remember what some of the other titles were that you mentioned earlier, Sam, which is, to me, a much closer uh, adaptation of the book. I think most people, if they know Massimo Delamino, they know him from his Giallo films, but he also made these really kind of weird Eurocult literary adaptations like this film, which I think for the sake of this episode, it's probably easier if we just call it Devil in the Flesh to avoid who's on first. He also made this adaptation of Dorian Gray that I really love. Is that the one with Helmut Berger in it? If you made a movie with Helmut Berger not wearing a shirt, I probably wouldn't care what the rest of the plot was. So that one's probably an acquired taste too, but they they both have these kind of themes of obsession and voyeurism and devil in the flesh is so fucked up though. I really enjoyed it. I did not expect myself to enjoy it that much because I also tried to watch the, uh, there was a 67 version, which again is like, this isn't the Venus and Furs guys. I'm not exactly sure what you're doing, but I have to say he did a good job of capturing uh, what I remember of the novel and then just going out there. I mean, that whole thing with the horse fucking, I was like, wow, uh, didn't expect you to go here. That reminded me of Borovchik's The Beast, which also has that scene of horse fucking in the beginning, which I have been permanently scarred by and will never forget. And so, of course, it's here, too, because... Well, and it's very fitting for especially the end of the movie, because he's basically that mayor getting Wanda ready for the, the bigger alpha male. That really is the element missing from the Franco film. And I know that it's not really an adaptation the way the Delamino one is, but just the sort of cruel just desserts of training some woman to be the perfect slave, but or to allow you to be the perfect slave. And spoiler alert, she just wants to be that for someone else. And the character here, the husband, he's just so unlikable that... You kind of were happy when anything bad happened to him. Oh, yeah. I really liked seeing him get his ass kicked. That was great. That was hilarious. The scene where he gets punched in the face. Yes. (laughs) So good. (laughs) And I like the POV shots from him at the end where he's got the cage over his face and everything. I was just like, "This this really works. This is effective. My favorite scene, though, is the scene where he writes a letter to her that is basically... He calls it her alibi, and it's basically a permission slip that says, like, whoops, if I murder this idiot while torturing him masochistically, he's fine with it. I think they had the same thing in the uh, Fifty Shades of Grey movie. I wish everyone in that movie got murdered. I wish there was horse fucking in that movie. Same. (laughs) Or anything remotely interesting. I think 90% (laughs) of that movie is contract negotiations, which we know are riveting. So what was going on in the late 60s to bring back Venus and Furs, the book and the idea so much? Because 67 is also when you get Venus and Furs from the Velvet Underground. I mean, was there some sort of like copyright case or uh, some sort of like um, morals charge that was brought against the book? Because it was just it felt like a whole uh, confluence of events that brought Venus and Furs back into public knowledge. It's just the same batch of LSD. 
So I may not be correct, but I have an actual theory about this, that if you think about the late 60s as the sort of emergence of the roughies, especially as they were being made in New York, a lot of those directors like Michael Finlay and, and Roberta Finlay and people like that wanted to make more and more lurid films, but because of censorship issues, they still couldn't dive fully into hardcore films yet. But censorship was more lax around violence. So they just started coming up with these plots that were more and more violent. And so I think in the case of that weird sort of black and white 67 version, that kind of reminds me of those early Michael Finlay movies where people go to these like wild sexy parties and n- nothing actually happens. Was but- this around too when like if it was hardcore it'd have to be one of those white coat movies. So it's like you could either make a quote unquote educational white coat movie, or you could make a roughie and have it be like the white slave trade or Venus and furs. And so I think that's part of why it came to kind of cult filmmaker and certainly cult musician attention. But I think it also just like there's, something weird happening at the end of the decade where it's maybe kind of the beginning of that, like reaction against the summer of love and movies start to take on a a darker sexual tone. So just the timing was right. And I want to say this was also because you had mentioned um, uh, usually the, the one of the next Franco films. I mean, this is also a really big time for decide adaptations. The lady Chatterley case was, earlier in the 60s, if not late 59, but it feels like they're taking known properties and quote-unquote adapting them and just to kind of add an air of respectability to stuff. Does that sound like it carries any water? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the reason that Sashay Masak is more kind of adaptable is because than, than Saad is because his work it it has a more concrete story with actual characters and this romantic relationship. And a lot of Saad's work, if you're trying to get around censorship, <laughs> that's not the direction to go because Justine and Juliet, it, they're basically these long, super graphic sexual scenes that you couldn't really adapt as easily. Though I think Franco at that period adapted more of them than anyone else. I mean, so many of the elements of Venus and Furs, it reminds me of like cuckolding videos that you see on Pornhub today, especially this whole like, oh, he's, you're going to pretend to be my servant and I'm going to call you Gregor and we're going to do this up, you know, and it just feels like, you know, if that last guy uh, in the the 69 version, if he ended up being an African-American gentleman, it'd be like, okay, yeah, this is basically Pornhub uh, cuck videos right now. Pretty much. Sounds like someone's been visiting my channel. (laughs) Hey, the more things change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The cinematography's lessened a little bit. Yeah, that's definitely true. (laughs) I did uh, try to watch the, I think it's Polanski did a version of Venus and Fur, which was adapted from the stage play, which was inspired by the book. And that's a lot of layers. And I couldn't get through it because there's just two people talking for the longest time. And I was just like, okay, it's going to be one of those movies. Oh, I like it. Did anything finally end up happening? Because I think I watched about a half an hour of it and they just kept talking. No, they just keep talking the whole time. Oh, 
Okay. I like long French movies where people just have conversations. So <laughs> it's, that's fair. It's basically what it was. It so it's sort of the whole thing is almost like this long therapy session where she just manipulates him into kind of admitting more about himself and more about his fantasies. And I think the play is really meant to be kind of an inversion of the novel where I don't want to say because this seems like a really the wrong thing to say when we're talking about Roman Polanski, but in a way, it's a very kind of pre me too adaptation of Venus and Furs, because the whole thing is about a woman taking control of the fantasizing and manipulating someone's fantasy rather than just being the object of the fantasy. It's interesting from a theoretical standpoint, I think, but definitely is not for everyone. And if you're expecting like a Polanski thriller, it's certainly not that. Yeah. I just, it felt so stage bound to me. I was waiting for it to, to do something because I, I I like what he does so often, but even with something like um, was it was it Carnosaur? Was it the Carnage. one where it was just four Carnage, Carnage not Carnosaur? Oh man, <laughs> Robert Polanski's Carnosaur was deep. I would love that. I would. Right? I would watch that in a hot second. So would I. <laughs> Clint Howard shows up in a weird cameo, and then Owen McGregor as well. Yeah, Clint Howard wins an Oscar. Finally, justice for Clint Howard. Hashtag. Can you please put that hashtag in the in this the, this episode? <laughs> but I mean, that was another one where I was just like, okay, this is kind of stagey. And I mean, I'll talk later on this year about um, Death and the Maiden, which was another stage play. But I felt like he broke away from the stage with that. Whereas with Venus and Fur, it's at least what I saw, because I gave up after a while. I was just like. Okay, yeah, this feels like a stage play. And I, I'm glad that they're not speaking like stage actors. They're not doing Will Smith from um, Six Degrees of uh, Kevin Bacon. Or, um, sorry, uh, what was that? Six what Degrees of Separation? Six Degrees of Separation, where he just feels like he is speaking to, you know, the people in the back row. So Venus and Fur is something where if you were going to teach like a graduate class on sachet masak and, and adaptations of his work that's something that you would show and you would talk about Guy Deleuze's book but like it's not going to interest anyone who's not academic or doesn't like those sorts of theoretical models worked out on screen like it, it is very it, it's an intellectual exercise and I, it's it's not a, it's a movie I liked a lot but not one that I feel like I could ever recommend to people unless I knew that was their thing it's an interesting exploration is probably the <laughs> the best thing I could say about it. It's not made for someone who's just simply going to look at the synopsis and say, ooh, a revenge film. Are you saying I'm too dumb to appreciate that movie? Hell, hell no. I'm, I'm saying that Roman Polanski has a snobby side, and I think it comes out in especially his play adaptations – like, I think some of the issues in Death and the Maiden are similar to issues in Venus and Fur, where he's trying to sort of work out a problem, and it's just an exercise for him to work out a problem, and he sometimes forgets to tell a story on the way, if if you know what I mean. Some of it reminded me a little bit of Mike Lee's Naked, as far as some of the conversations go. But Definitely. Mike Lee's Naked, I feel, has more of a destination. 
Yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. I don't think it's meant to have a destination, which I know is it's very kind of I, I know we're going to be talking about uh, some Jacques Rivette a little bit later in the year. And I think Venus and Fur has more in common with some of Rivette's long relationship dramas than it does with the rest of Polanski's films. Yeah, I don't know if I'm ready for four hours of Jacques Rivette, but I'm going to try my best. Oh, you got this. And if not, I'm, you know, happy to tell people how great it is and make them watch it. And then they'll be mad at me, which is what happens every time Jacques Rivette comes up in a conversation for me. (laughs) Happy to disappoint people. (laughs) Very nice. (laughs) All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. これは<笑> お前たちのような<笑> <笑>世界のどこにもないような危険人間にするためにな。お前は一体何人なの私は死がやない。大丈夫。やめてくれ。<笑> これは危険じゃない。死がやないんだ。やめとけ。やめろ。私はなぜ何のために<笑>
As right, we'll be back next week with a look at Teru Ishii's Horrors of Malformed Men. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Brad. Sam, what have you got going on? As always, I'm really busy and thus terrible at remembering which projects I've done have been announced and which ones have not. But at the moment, I can say I did commentaries for two upcoming Kino releases, which is the new Blu-ray of the 1943 fantasy film Munchausen, which is super important to me. And even though it's a Nazi film, I think there's a lot about it to enjoy. And I also did a commentary for uh, Serge Gainsbourg's first film as director, Je t'aime non plus, which is way, way overdue for a release and will be out soon. And Brad, what's keeping you busy? Uh, once I get over this uh, hundred degree fever that I have in this Christmas cold, I've got uh, I got an episode coming up on three on a meat hook. The yes, William, yeah, the William Girdler movie. Um, I I love the genre of that era of drive-in movie where to pad things out, you get a twenty minute concert in the middle of it. Uh, I'm going to be directing a movie later this year called Introducing Donna. That's a uh, drama that'll be a dramedy that'll be over on my uh, patreon channel but those are the two kind of main things i'm working on now well thank you again guys for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode you also find a link over to patreon where you can make it a donation to the show every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world hashtag justice for clint howard
are putting up a fight. A price they'll have to pay one day, the price will be to die. They'll find that there's no one to protect them anymore. Sometimes someone somewhere will come knocking. Well, they'll come knocking on the door. Venus in first will be smiling. Oh, when that moment arrives. Venus in first will be smiling. Oh, when that moment If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.